I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. How can we be happier in our jobs? And I should remind you, look, if you're, if you're interested in making work better, you can sign up for more and, and sign up for our occasional newsletter at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I'd be uh, very willing to accept you into my professional network as well on LinkedIn. So following the discussion with Andy Rhodes, the Chief Constable of Lancashire this week, uh, this is a second episode about the police. And my original plan, I'll be honest with you, was to, to edit both of them and get one mega episode about the, the policing profession. But to be honest, both were just too good to chop up. So I want to flag that this is kind of about work culture, but also it's just a brilliant chat with a fascinating person. So if you're looking just for specifics about purpose and and those sort of things you're going to find it's filled actually peppered with that but also peppered with discussions about innovation in complex jobs consider it as sort of a box set with the other police episode when it gets into its flow it covers dog shows walking buses all manner of just like crazy genius Today's guest then is Stephen Colgan. He joined the police after a bet from his dad, which he explains. And uh, I was put on to him by our, our last guest, Andy Rhodes, who told me about the ways they'd used clever innovations to reduce the tension on council estates. And so rather than chop this ch- chat down, I decided just to, to put it out. So Stephen covers the way that they led innovation in, in the workplace in the police. And uh, I, I just find the, the whole discussion enthralling. It's just far too interesting for me to butcher it. Stephen is a perfect example of a multi-career life. He, uh, after his career in the police, he retired after a full stint of duty in the police. And he's, uh, he found that via the illustrations he was doing, he found himself becoming friends with the, the comedy sci-fi writer Douglas Adams just before he passed away. Um, and ended up through that becoming a writer on the TV show QI. He actually ended up writing a book about his police career uh, and the the career in the problem-solving unit in the police called One Step Ahead. And that's the book that occasionally referenced in my discussion with him. And he's, in fact, just published a novel called A Murder to Die For. Brilliant character. Uh, I mean, just, you know, utterly compelling in terms of his uh, his knowledge and his perspective and his, his thoughtfulness when it came to thinking about how to do the job. So, so I'm not going to lie, we, this was uh, an evening in the summer. One summer evening, I travelled up to Amersham and we sat in the pub garden of a pub in Amersham. So uh, I'm going to dive into my intro, but my intro actually starts... The tape was rolling and I actually started with me reminding him about what this podcast was. And the the chat it provokes is quite interesting. So here's Stephen. I do this thing on um, work culture and like how to make work better. And, And I think the thing I found really appealing about your stuff here was that you seemed like, you seemed like at the outset, you know, it's probably worth you explaining how you joined the police. But uh, you seemed at the outset a bit of a troublemaker. 
in the nicest possible way, in the way that people yeah. are sort of styled troublemakers, but are just asking difficult questions. That's it. That's exactly it. I mean, a lot of people you would refer to as troublemakers are people who just see things from a different yeah. viewpoint and, and just seem... Not intent on upsetting the apple cart, but but asking, you know, well, why why have you got that sort of cart? Is there a better way of transporting apples? That's the way I look at it. Um, I mean, you see a lot of this. I think that there, I might be a little bit on the ASD spectrum. I'm not entirely sure. I, I, my granddaughter's been uh, diagnosed, and I, and it's been very interesting watching how she relates to the world because I can see a lot. She has a, a more severe form than I did, if if indeed I've got it, because I've never been checked. But I can, I can see so many aspects of the way she questions things. In what things. sense? Well, in the fact that she doesn't, doesn't accept things as they are. Right, she, so she asking needs why three yeah, more times. absolutely, yeah, very much so. Why does that happen? Well, why, why, why? And she'll get, she'll get to the base reason behind anything. And once she's got a, a satisfactory answer, then she can move on. And I, I was kind of the same, because you'd, you'd be saying, you know, well, why do we do it this way? Surely the, the, this isn't the most effective way to do it. Well, this is the way we've always done it. That, that's just not the answer I want to hear. If there's a better way of doing something, and, and or why another thing would be why a particular problem is occurring, because people would just make assumptions. I give you a perfect example of this: was there used to be this assumption, with, uh, certainly among quite a lot of my colleagues, that burglaries went up during the summer holidays because the kids were off school. There was this assumption that well, there's loads more kids; they're bored, they're burgling houses. I could never quite make that jump from how does a kid go from being a schoolboy, because it's invariably boys, how do they go from being a schoolboy to being a burglar? <laughs> <laughs> and I could never figure that out. So I started digging and trying to find out more. And what I discovered, of course, was that was utter nonsense. There were more burglaries in the summer holidays because there were more empty houses because everyone's on holiday. <laughs> so, and you had the bins thing, right? Yeah, oh, like, the bins thing is a perfect example. A, a, a good example. Like, yeah. If the bins not moved back, then someone's out. Absolutely. I mean, the bin lorries come round uh, on a certain day. All the bins are pushed out onto the street. The bins are emptied. You know, the bins are generally scattered all over the place. And people who are home go out to try and find their bin and they haul it back onto their property. The bins that are left out are invariably by people who are commuters. They've got they, or they're at work. You know, they're out for the day, and they've all handily got a house number painted on them. So it's a great signal to a potential burglar. These are the empty houses. Let's go and case them. Let's see which is the easiest one to screw. Um, you know, it, it's it's those little things. It, it's it's digging down that why 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 thing about why does this happen and trying to find the the underlying cause of problems. That really appealed to me, and that was something I loved and um it's interesting though I've never heard it expressed in that way because like the one thing that like is the holy grail that a lot of businesses seek for and you see books on it now which is this idea of psychological safety and so, yeah, yeah. where psychological safety is the freedom to ask difficult questions the freedom but it's interesting that the way that you frame it in that in a different time actually people who maybe are less in tune with what's acceptable ask those questions anyway yeah, so, so I, they I, were the sort of I think the so I mean, I mean as I said there may be an element of ASD but I think the other big difference was the fact that I'd come from a completely different world of policing because I, I grew up in Cornwall as you know my dad was a policeman in Cornwall and um, the way it worked back then in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up is most people didn't own their own houses back then so, so police officers lived in police accommodation they lived in married quarters so my neighbours were police officers as well and so most of the kids I hung out with were the children of police officers. So I, I was very, very embroiled in police culture. And, um, but what struck me was, in, in someone like, even a largest town, I mean, we're sitting here doing this interview in Amersham, which is, you know, end of the Met Line, out in Buckinghamshire. It's, it's a reasonably large town. Uh, Helston, the town I grew up, grew up in, is about the same size. And yet, I can guarantee you, there's more graffiti, more damage, more crime here than there ever was in Helston. And part of the reason for that is that in Cornwall and in rural communities, you, you, people live there, they go to school there, they get married to someone they went to school with, they have kids there and they die there and you get extended families um, that, that don't move. I mean, give you an example. I mean, I lived eight miles from Falmouth or 10 miles from Falmouth. And if people were moving house, they wouldn't dream of going to Falmouth. They just find somewhere else in Helston. People tended to be quite parochial and stay where they were. So, so everyone, everything was connected to everything else. So there was a kind of bush telegraph operating in right. the town to the extent that if something happened, if I'd, if I'd been up to no good in the town and someone had seen it, by a sort of process of sort of osmosis through the community, I can guarantee it would get back to my parents and they'd know. And the fact that I was a copper's son as well, you know, put extra um, effort into that. When I came to London, the difference here was that a lot of communities are very fractured because people have come from all over the country to come and work in London. And particularly around the commuter belt, like this is, uh, and even if you go in a little bit closer, you know, you're going towards Ealing, Acton, Greenwich, all these sorts of places that are around the hub of central London. Um, 
people don't know their own neighbours because they've come from all all over the country and indeed all over the world to come and work in London and they get up in the morning and they get on the half past six train they go into work they work for eight ten hours they get on the train coming home they come home in the dark you know in the winter they go home have their dinner sit down and watch the telly and that's their lives they, they don't they don't become part of the community and they're not they're not embroiled in the community and what's going on in community affairs I mean I was a part of that myself I worked in London for 30 years commuting in from Buckinghamshire and when I retired I suddenly realized I knew nothing about the town I live in uh, and all my friends were in London. I had no friends here either because my life had been commuting. And um, and that's the big difference. You had these you had these dysfunctional communities in London, and in London they're, they're very uh, in Cornwall they're very functional. And so immediately I could see a difference between how policing works in somewhere like Helston in Cornwall, where policing is very much with a small p and everyone is playing a part in it. Right. So you didn't need that many cops, you know, there, there, was, there was maybe only about 10 cops at Elston Police Station, compared to Amersham, where everything is disconnected. The community aren't really part of the policing process, and so they've got, you know, 50, 60 cops, to, and, and they've still got, and they're still overloaded. It's, um, that was the huge difference for me. And so you came, so, so to, to go through what you did, I mean, you, you joined the police, part of a drunken bet with it was man, it was right? a drunken bet with my dad yeah <laughs> it was it was whether or not i was man enough to survive for six I mean, months he played you but amazingly a brilliant so. bit of problem solving yeah. he got rid of this this tatty scruffy bearded hippie child and got me into a career for 30 years uh, and out of his nice pretty little cottage at 50 quid bargain and, and i thought i was winning he was a very shrewd man and so tell me how long into you being in the police so you spent 10 years in like the problem solving unit right yeah at the end of it yeah, yeah. So were you doing these problem-solving things before? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I mean, there, there were several things that sort of hit me. The minute, the minute I hit, my feet hit the ground at, at Hendon at training school, at the, at the police college, there were things that didn't ring true for me. And I, I mean, I should say my mindset at this point was I'm only here for six months to win a bet. I'm not really worried whether I rock the boat or not. And your uh, appraisals didn't sound like they were going oh, amazingly well. Oh, my appraisals well. were terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible. How many times I got told, you know, this really isn't the job for you, you should think about leaving. Um, but the, there were things that didn't click for me. The first thing that didn't click was that one of the very first lessons we had at Hendon, so this is one of the very first sitting in a classroom learning to be a police officer, was about the history of police. And so we learned about, you know, Robert Peel and the formation of, of sort of organised policing systems. And, um, and the... The first mission statement for policing, the, f the first written down set of instructions as to what policing is for, were written by a guy called Sir Richard Main, who was one of the Met's, Met Police's first commissioners. And it starts, the primary object of an efficient police is the prevention of crime. That's the first sentence. The second sentence is, you know, the, 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 the secondary function of police is the uh, detection and apprehension of offenders when you've been unable to satisfy the first job that you've got, which is prevention. And immediately I looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, of course that's right. Prevention must be the primary object of policing because if you look at it logically, I mean, if, if you can prevent... I mean, I think if you were to take... If you were to go out into the street and do a, uh, a, a street poll of people and say, would you rather the police are really good at catching bad guys and that penalties and punishments were increased and, you know, more people were going to prison, or would you rather not be burgled? I, I think most people would rather not be burgled, but... but well, it'd be a very strange person to say, no, I'd rather be burgled but catch the bad guys. Because, of course, you can't have bad guys until they've committed a crime. And, um, and yet... So you were just the man who put his hand up and said, we're not doing yeah, the things... So what prevention do we... You know, yeah. Well, it, I, I'd sort of logged onto that. I thought, great, so the primary object is prevention. That makes sense, because when you, when you prevent crimes from happening, you, you, you know, the prison population doesn't increase, the police haven't got so much to do, um, you know, insurance companies aren't overloaded, the NHS isn't overloaded. More importantly, you don't get victims, you know, both, both physically and emotionally victimised by someone being in your house or stealing your car or beating you up or whatever. And, um, but we got sort of in, into the training. It was four months of training in those days, 16 weeks. And we got sort of four weeks in, and I realised, yes, we have to learn the basics, like, you know, law and police procedure. We have to learn our powers of arrest. We have to learn all about use of reasonable force. You've got to learn about courts procedure. But there was nothing about prevention. So, yeah, after a while, the hand did go up saying, what do we do about prevention? What do we do about stopping crimes from happening? At which point, I was told, well, that's not something you have to worry about. I thought, really? But we, I, eventually, I, I finished Hendon, got pushed out to my first police station. And again, the question was, what prevention are we doing? Because it seemed to me that all the police officers just running around like blue-ass flies from one call to another, reporting crimes after they'd happened and trying to catch people who'd committed crimes. 
And I thought, well, if you were stopping the crimes from happening, we'd all be less busy and everyone would be happier. We wouldn't have all these victims. And they said, no, it's not your job. That's the job of the crime prevention officer. And I said, officer, what singular? And it was every borough in London, 32 London boroughs, had just one single crime prevention officer who what was. Did go around and give well, stickers. Out. Yeah, he was invariably a, an older police officer who was coming up towards retirement, right. who, who was sent on several courses, you know, training courses by the Home Office, and went to seminars and things like this, you know, run by sort of locks companies like Chubb and people like this, and and they would learn all these preventative techniques and, and things people can do to sort of stop their cars being stolen, their houses being stolen, and their job was to go out and tell the public this. But when you're looking at somewhere like, you know, the London Borough of Ealing, which covers Ealing, Acton and Southall, you know, it's, it's a massive, yeah. I don't know how many people live there. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be hundreds of thousands of people. One officer isn't going to be able to go out and knock on every door and give crime prevention advice. Whereas I can remember my dad telling me about when he first joined the police um, back in the late 50s, that crime prevention was part of what he did. You'd right. be walking along. And you'd knock on a door and say, hello, Mr. Smith, I notice you leave your windows open when you go out. You really should shut those, you know, because someone could get in there. Or I notice you've got louver windows. They're really easy to pick out, you know. They'd be offering that kind of advice all the time. And they'd also be building these bonds with the community so everyone knew who the local police officer Mm. was. So they knew I could phone up, you know, PC Colgan, you know, for advice. Or Mm. I I could tell him something in confidence. I knew it would go no further. Whereas, by the time I joined the police in 1980, it was exactly the opposite. If If I'd been seen sitting behind a cafe having a cup of tea with the owner and chatting about the problems he's got around there that was skiving you know i should be out trying to catch bad guys and and we were we were we were judged on on our figures we were judged on how many arrests we'd had how many stops and searches we had how many um how many convictions we'd got at court and and the reason was the workload was so big and it was nothing compared to what these poor sods have got to deal with now that, that was an easily countable object that you could hold up to your bosses and they could hold up to the Home Office and say, look how busy we're working, look what, how good we are, we've had this many arrests. The problem is, of course, that they're all inputs. They're, they're all measurements of police activity, not what police are achieving. Yeah. They're, they're not measuring the outputs. What we should have been checking is, do people feel safe in their homes? Is crime overall on a, on a decline? You know, are we, getting, are we making an impact? And of course we weren't. But it's really hard to, do, to measure prevention. Yeah. It's really hard because you, you have to, first of all, prove that it was what activity you and the community were involved in that actually caused the reduction in that particular crime. And you've almost got to be able to prove as well that those crimes would have happened if you hadn't done what you'd done. Yeah. Prevention's really hard, and it was, it was very much in the too hard bin. So I was told, you know, forget about the prevention thing. It's nothing to do with us. Just get as many arrests as you can. And I wasn't happy with that. And I, I, I knew I only had six months, you know, and I, I knew I was going to be... Uh, you were definitely sticking to your old man's I was, I was sticking... Well, I say that, I got, I got to the end of six months. It sounded and I was, like you were enjoying life in I London. was enjoying myself so much. I was going to gigs yeah. because bands didn't come to court. That's I, right. I loved music. Bands didn't come to court yeah. in those days. We had to, we had to drive 70 miles through the whole length of Cornwall to yeah. Plymouth if we wanted to see a band. And then it was generally Good luck a, if they played. a C or D list yeah. band, you know or some old prog rockers from the 60s or something. Um, so yeah, I was enjoying the social life, I was enjoying London, and I was enjoying the buzz I got from actually, you know, when you did get a, a 24% reduction in crime in a particular housing estate, and you knew it was what you'd done and getting the community to do things, that was brilliant, that was such a buzz, and people saying to you, thanks ever so much for what you've been doing, we feel safe here for the first time in years. That was brilliant, but of course, none of that went towards any of my appraisals. All it looked like on paper is I was a lazy cop who hadn't stopped enough people yeah. or hadn't arrested enough people. And but here's the thing that I found interesting, that you, that you were reading... I, I, saw, I saw echoes of this, you see. You were reading papers on criminology, and you were yeah. reading what people were discovering in the world of academia, yeah. and then realising that frontline coppers weren't exposed to any of this and, and no. they, they weren't and I've noticed the same in you know the, the whole of my fascination is I was sort of in an office environment thinking I wonder if there's a way to make this better and then you start seeing that there's loads of research on yeah, this yeah absolutely so, so were you alone in sort of doing those things or did you find a few kindred, kindred I, spirits I felt that I was alone for right. a long time and then I started discovering and what made the difference is I actually managed to get a posting to Hendon as a trainer now it was IT was just coming along, computers were just coming along, and this was the early 90s. Yeah. And I had a bit of a flair for them, so I got a job at what was then the, the Metropolitan Police Telecommunications School, which is a, a little annex part of the Hendon Training School Estate. 
but we had a, a, a quite a lot of input into syllabus design for the main training courses because of course all the new coppers coming out had to learn how to use computers for the first time and how to and and how to use word processors because they'd been using typewriters for all their statements and things so um i i got a, a much greater exposure to a, a la much larger number of police officers and what i discovered is amongst some of the other trainers um whether they worked at hendon or whether they were trainers out on the borough um, you'd meet line-minded individuals who thought exactly the same way as I did. Uh, quite a lot of them were what they called in those days home beats, which was effectively a community police officer, someone who had a dedicated area to look after. They were their local Bobby. Um, they were, a lot of those were very much uh, online. But then occasionally you'd meet some people, there was a guy called Neil Henson, who, was, who thought exactly the same way as I did. And he'd also upset all of his bosses uh, by, by deciding to do things that were were more likely to stop crime from happening or were more likely to catch the bad guys and put anyone else off doing it in future by putting things in place to sort of um, basically a sustainable solution so the problem didn't come back. I, I got a phone call out of the blue basically asking me to come up to Scotland Yard uh, from a guy called Tim Godwin who at that time was the Deputy Assistant Commissioner um, and the idea was he was putting together a team to explore some of these ideas because he'd been out to America and he'd seen it was, it was just after all the, the big stuff that had gone in New York with Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani and, yeah. and, and Bill Bratton. Even though Giuliani may have turned into a, a Trump-loving lunatic since, at the time he got a lot of praise because he, brought, he appeared to have brought crime down in New York. Now, it's, it's a bit controversial, some of his claims, because crime was already on a decline before Giuliani even got on the boat. And Giuliani is very good at claiming credit for things yeah, that he didn't necessarily Brick do. Yeah, I think Brick says that he yeah. claimed credit for absolutely, absolutely everything. Absolutely everything, yeah. And I, he was, he's a good politician, you know, in, in that respect. He's very good at claiming credit for what he wasn't doing. But, and the other thing is, of course, he, he did a lot of work in bringing in what the press called um, zero-tolerance policing, this idea that everyone has to pay for their crime, no matter how small the crime is, that there's no let-off. You know, there's no... Uh, cops no longer have a, a discretion. If you commit a crime, you're going to get arrested. Simple as that. It's a, it's a fairly harsh regime. I'm not very keen on it um, because the people committing the small crime at the very, very bottom end of things are quite often the poorest in society mm. and the people are most disadvantaged. And sometimes they're stealing food because they haven't got food, you know, and, and saying that they will be punished equally as, as well as someone who's doing, you know, stealing $2 million in, in sort of white-collar crime. No, it, yeah. it didn't work for me. But under Giuliani, there was Bill Bratton who was the chief of police, and Bratton is quite brilliant. Bratton had, had really cottoned on to this idea, something they call POP, problem-oriented policing. This idea that, that you orient all of your police activity around solving problems, and getting to the root causes of things and tackling those instead of constantly responding to the, the symptoms of the problem. And Bratton did some extraordinary stuff in New York, um, and, and said crime rates came thundering down. Tim Godwin and some other senior officers have been over to America, seen this working in places like New York, in places like San Diego, uh, in places like, you know, un surprising places like, like North Carolina. Um, and he said, we've got to have something like this in, in the UK. Came back, started chatting people, well, there's people already doing this and we've been telling them off. <laughs> and <laughs> it was, I, I think it was Tim Godwin used the phrase, you know, we're going to try and change you from, pioneer, from pariahs to pioneers. I, I like the idea of, of sort of shifting the focus and he put together this team called the problem solving unit which was me and uh, four other people and an analyst and the idea was we would go and look at problems that had a history that didn't respond to normal um, policing methods to see if we can come up with a, a solution a sustainable solution for the problem and secondly you know design something to stop the problem coming back which could maybe be applied elsewhere as a preventative tool right got you that was so, the idea. so when you went to, to like let's go into some of the some of the examples are so colorful and lovely that so so the underpass problem the the underpass that was does that give you enough to, to yeah yeah I, I think i know what you're talking about yeah this is a perception issue that one was right so, yeah, so was that a problem that you were called in to deal with yeah well it was it, that one wasn't one okay. that we were particularly okay. asked to go and deal with it was one that i be, became aware of through friends of mine because it was a station i'd previously worked at and some of my old colleagues were there and i just got phone up saying have you got an idea for this and the problem was that there were a group of youths that used an underpass under a busy dual carriageway they made it their hangout place. They used to ride skateboards up and down there. There was graffiti on the walls. They used to smoke in there. They used to drink in there. It was their place to hang out because yeah. they had nowhere else. Nowhere to go. Um, and it was the only connection, apart from walking some way down the road and using a, a light-controlled pedestrian crossing, it was the, the easiest connection to get from quite a large housing state, including a lot of retirement uh, home-type places, to the shops, to the local Prada shops. 
And for a lot of people who were wheelchair users, it was the only way because it had sloping ends at both ends of the underpass, whereas otherwise they have to go all the way down the street, cross over the road and negotiate curbs and things like this. Um, and they were scared of going through the tunnel because of the kids. And the kids were quite aggressive and quite rude when you approached them. Um, and I looked at this and I thought, well, well, first of all, let's, let's see how bad the problem is. Because the thing is, the perception by the kids of the old people was very negative. The perception of the older people of the kids was very negative. And all of it seemed to be based on hearsay. They didn't seem to be... I, I couldn't find anyone who could give me an absolute stone-bonker example of where they had been you know, threatened by a youth or whether an old person had a go at them or anything like this. It was, it was all hearsay. So what we organised as, as a sort of experiment was a walking bus which is the idea that said, well, we'll provide you with police protection. That was the, the, the phrase we used. And myself and a couple of other uniformed officers, we walked through the tunnel with a group of the older people. But instead of just walking past the youth, we stopped and we talked to them. And you could see people sitting there going, what are they doing? What are these police officers doing? And the kids were quite negative to start with. And the old people were very negative. Same uh, time every day? Uh, yeah, we, we did this for two or three days. Yeah. And eventually there was, a, there was a little breakthrough. And then one of them, because after about two or three days, both sides were starting to realise that the two groups weren't actually a threat to each other. Yeah. And then the breakthrough was when one of the older people said, are you such and such his grandson? And they was, yeah, yeah, what's it to you? And they said, oh, no, no, I, said, I, I live next door to your grand, you know, and like, I remember you when you were this high, and, and all their friends start ribbing their mate, oh, they remember <laughs> you. And, and you had bright red hair, did you? Oh, and, and it was, and suddenly there's a little bit of humour, there's a little bit, and what we did over the course of, of a week is gradually reduce it down from having several cops walking with this group of people to then ultimately having just one uh, community support officer walking with them to then no one walking with them because now that the fear had dissipated and, and both groups had seen that neither side was yeah. a threat they're just you know there'll always be this clash between generations every generation sees the next generation as some kind of alien species it's been going on forever i can show you quotes going back to plato about our oh, kids today they're awful it, it's always been the case yeah. but if you can break down that um communication is key here if you can break down that that wall of ignorance in the true sense yeah. of the word the fact they don't understand each other's groups so they don't fear each other anymore then everyone can use the overpass in peace and this sort of was identical thinking for the dog show right yeah yeah well the, the dog show was a very similar thing the, the dog show was a, a difficult one it was um we had a very fractured community um we had a where lot was of it where yeah uh, where? in greenwich down yeah. in greenwich um and it was a very fractured community it's a ha big housing estate there were um, there were a lot of see single mums get a bad deal. I think single mums are bloody brilliant with what they oh have God, to deal with. I think what should be getting the raw deal is the absent dads. That's, mm. No one ever uses the phrase absent dad. They mm. always use single mum. But the single mums were doing the best they could. But there were a lot of absent dads, and the kids were running riot, frankly. And, and because they didn't have you know a proper functioning family to belong to, they made their own. And and the gang problem was starting to emerge. And it wasn't as serious there as it was in some parts of London. Uh, in South London particularly, but it was emerging. And when one young lad got stabbed and killed, it became a bit more serious. And it became serious particularly because um, the video footage that emerged at the funeral, um, which I think was posted on YouTube and then got taken down quite quickly, was the gang carrying the coffin right. with masks on their faces rather than a family. Right. And, and it, it became a bit of a political hot potato and, and Blair, who was in at the time, um, sent something through the home office that came down, it came down, it came down, and said, we've got to do something about this estate. We can't have these sorts of video images up because it, it makes it look like we've lost control. Mm. And, and what does this say about the state of Britain today when, when uh, you know, a, a youth is tragically killed and it's his gang members who are carrying his coffin and not family or, or friends mm. or relatives. Um, so we went and looked at this estate. It was very, I said, very dysfunctional. No one talked to anyone else. Uh, a lot of the adults, particularly the older people, were scared to come out on the streets. And the kids kind of ran around the streets and they would throw things at you from overhead and, and from passing vehicles. And it was it was awful. And one of the things I learned over the course of uh, many years is that if you want to try and bring a, a community together, one of the first things you've got to do is try and find one easy way of bringing them together is to find points of commonality. If you can find something they can all focus on that they all want. And we, we thought, you know, this is a very diverse community here as well. There were, there were many many different languages spoken on the estate and there were people from various different religious or or, um, or sort of racial groups on the estate we thought well what about something like a world food fair what about if we have a, a, a street party with lots of different world food 
and virtually no one attended. And uh, then we tried something with a youth centre, which didn't work. Police badged or community badged? This, this is both. It, right. It's kind of it's, it's kind of done with the local community police yeah. officers, and we got the schools involved as well, and, and as many, and, and the local authority, obviously everyone involved as much as we could. But it, it wasn't working, and then we thought there's got to be some way to bring people together. There's got to be something they've all got in common. And I think it was the aforementioned Neil Henson. We were walking around this estate, and Neil, we were we were arguing over this, and and. I think it was me who said, do you, do you realise that... I said, the one thing, there is a point of commonality, although I don't know what we can do with it. it everyone's got a dog. Everyone you see walking around has got a dog, either for companionship, for protection, or just because they like dogs. Um, and Neil sort of looked across and went, dog show? <laughs> and the idea kind of put down roots. We thought, well, you know, dogs are a great bridge. Um, you know, they allow you to speak to people you wouldn't normally be able to speak to. I mean, another great example is the fire brigade. Uh, we'd done some work in Scotland, uh, working with the Scottish police. Um, a little, this is a year or so later after this when I was doing work with the Home Office. And we found the fire service was a brilliant bridge between cops and police and, and youth. The youth didn't want to speak to us because we were cops, but they'd speak to fire officers because they're kind of heroic figures. And, okay. and they won't, they can't arrest you and they can't yeah. confiscate your booze and all that sort of thing. So it was a great bridge between two groups. Um, and we, we thought dogs are the same. Because if I see you across the road, complete stranger, and I walk over and say, hello, I'm Steve, you think, oh my God, I've got the loony. If you've got a dog, and I say, oh, that's a lovely looking dog. That's a lovely looking German Shepherd you got there, or Afghan. What's his name? How old is he? It's an instant bridge. Mm. And, and you feel warmer towards me, even though I'm a stranger, because I like your dog. And I'm saying nice things about your dog. And we thought, I wonder if we can do this through a dog show. So we, uh, with the local police, in the, and to their credit, you know, we might have had the idea. and We always did things and badged it very much with the local police. Because if it was something done from Scotland Yard, if the press got over it, particularly the sort of right-wing yeah. tabloids, yeah. it would be, it would, we would be, I mean, when yeah. we did some things in the past, it was, oh, police do this instead of catching bad guys, front page, Daily Mail, you know. Um, so we would always try and badge it by the community and the local police if we could. Um, so yeah, we, we got some police dogs in to do a display. We got the Batsy dogs, which wasn't very far away involved. We got the People's Dispensary of Sick Animals, PDSA involved. We got uh, local vets, local schools, all these sorts of things, organised all these competitions. We could, it wasn't easy to do a sort of best of breed and things like that because everything seemed to be crossbreed, staffies and, and things like this. But we, we did it, waggliest tail, yeah. or if they'd been cropped, waggliest stump, which I thought was a funny, <laughs> cate funny category. Uh, you know, pointiest ears. We did all sorts yeah. of weird stuff. But it worked, and, and we realised that we'd started to make a chink in the armour when, yeah. when you see some little old lady about, you know, like a Monty Python, what they used to call the pepper pots, these little old ladies with the hats on, you know, go walking with their little dogs. Um, and she was having a go at this, this six-foot-four black lad uh, who had something like a Rottweiler or a Staffy Cross. And she's having a go at him, telling him his dog's too fat. And, and he's going, well, she's going, what do you feed him on? He says, I feed him on this. Oh, that's rubbish. That's terrible stuff. You should be feeding him this. And he's trying to write down the brand name. And I thought these two people would have You'd crossed the road to him. avoid each other yeah. in any other because she would have been a little bit scared of him and he would have thought interfering old busybody. And, um, and it was joyous. And, and don't get me wrong, I can't pretend that, that the estate overnight became, you know, the most wonderful place to live in the world. But a few years later, when I went back to visit and, and the work carried on, again, involvement with the schools, local authorities, local charities and third sector people, um, it had become a much nicer place. Mm. There, there was a communal garden where people were growing stuff in raised beds. There were People were out walking around the street and they weren't scared anymore. The gang problem had, had minimised to almost nothing. Crime rates had dropped quite substantially. And it had its problems. It still had a lot of problems. But compared to what it was like, it was, it was paradise compared to what it had been like. Yeah. And it all started with a dog show. Linking people and getting people talking It's together, what it all comes back that. to. It's breaking down. I mean, I, I, I spoke at the Brighton Fringe a couple of years ago. I think three years ago now. And they had a brilliant scheme running down there that I think it's by the year 2020. They want to be the first city in the UK where everyone knows their neighbour. That's the simple plan. And okay. all they're asking people to and do... it's actually a tiny little step, right? It's a tiny step. All you have to do is get to know your neighbour on your left-hand side, get to know your neighbour on your right-hand yeah. side. If possible, opposite as well. Yeah. But those two people, because if they do the same and the people next to them do the same, you create this gigantic Venn diagram where everyone is connected to everyone else. And it deals with so many things. It, it means you feel safer in your home because people, people care about you now and they look out for your property when you go on holiday. They'll even look after your cat or your plants when you go on holiday. Um, you know, sharing of power tools and things like that becomes much easier. Don't all have to own a belt sander if one person's yeah. got one on the street. Um, crime goes down because you're looking out for each other and, it, and everyone feels happier. Everyone, people feel substantially happier when they know their neighbours. Yeah. 
and, and it wasn't much to ask. It, it just get to know your neighbor on either side. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Back to Stephen. After I bought him a second drink in the pub garden, we started talking about an episode where people were complaining about noise from a local nightclub. He was called in to try and solve it in a quite brilliant way. Cops don't have any power to deal with noise. You know, there's no power of arrest or anything to do with noisiness. And we don't have any instruments to measure the noise to see whether anything's it's got to be dealt with by environmental health. All we can do is turn up and say, can you turn the noise down? And if someone says no, there's nothing, nothing we can do about it. It's, it's, a, it's a pain in the backside, frankly. But, but people will always phone police first. Um, so there was that aspect of it. The police, it was, it was a pain for us. And it was also a pain for the local authority because they get lots of letters of complaint and people saying you should oppose their license, take their drinks license away, shut it down, blah, 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 blah. But, of course, it brought a lot of money into the community. It gave young people somewhere constructive, safe to go to on a Friday and Saturday night. So you don't want to lose that either. Yeah. And we thought, well, let's go and see exactly what this problem is. So, Because all we ever heard was it would come out on the, on the radio as you know, disturbance outside local nightclub. And disturbance is a very nebulous term. Mm. Um, which which can mean anything. It can mean anything from people being a bit noisy to to a riot. You know, yeah. it, it's so we went and looked at the club, and what we realised was it was a noise issue, and specifically, sorry ladies, but it was specifically women's voices, because women's voices are a higher register and right. they carry further, and women tend to gather more in groups than men do. So you've got a concentration of noise in one spot. Plus, they've just come out of a nightclub where they've had loud music playing. They're a little bit deafened. They're all a little bit squiffy as well because they've had a few beers. Um, you know, and they're toppling and falling off their shoes and giggling, all very good natured, but loud, very noisy. And we thought there's got to be a way of, if we can just keep them quiet until the groups have dispersed a bit, so the noise, the noise levels are reduced by the fact that the, the larger group where the concentration of noises is dispersed a bit, how can we keep them quiet as they move away from the club? So it's sort of only like a one-minute job, really, a two-minute job, get uh, yeah, them away. Yeah, from... just, just get them away and disperse yeah. the groups so the noise levels get broken into much yeah. lower uh, yeah. noise groups, as it were, noise, um, uh, much, a much smaller noise issue. And um, our initial idea was, well, you know, we, we were cracking jokes, you know, sitting around uh, sitting around the table thinking about it, saying, well, well we can't gag people, and we, we can't sort of stick a dummy in their mouth or something like this, you know. And, uh, but but that's that's kind of what we want to do. We want to do something, you know, something that keep them quiet. And and one of the guys came up with the idea. Well, why don't we? They're going to be a bit dehydrated anyway coming out of the club. Why don't we issue them with bottles of water, or get the you know not out of the public purse. The club's going to have to pay for yeah. it, uh, which will be built into the ticket price anyway. So there's no public money involved in this. And and it seemed to work. People came out. They were having a drink of water, and and you can't be loud and noisy when you're drinking water. But there were other issues with water. There was the disposal of all the plastic bottles. Right. During the winter months, we got sheets of ice forming on the road and things like that. So it wasn't going to be a good, sustainable solution. Um, someone suggested then using toffees or something, you know, or chewing gum or something like that. And, and toffees was okay until, you know, someone loses a filling. But then the idea of lollipops came along. I thought lollipops are great. And they worked so well. I mean, if you've got 
a lollipop stuffed in your cheek. It's really, I mean, you stick your finger in there. It's really hard to be loud when you've got a because you, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really hard when you've got a lollipop in your mouth. And, and there was a secondary benefit we hadn't anticipated, which was brilliant. And that was that when you gave lollipops to blokes, they became less aggressive. I don't know whether it's a regression to childhood or whether it, it works a bit like a pacifier. Whatever, it's very hard for a bloke to square up to another bloke and say, do you stand on my shoes or you look at my girl funny? When, when you've got a chopper chop stuck <laughs> in your cheek, you know, or, or, uh, uh, or a lollipop. And, and it just worked so damn well. And we thought, this is a great good news story. And the, the Met Police Press Department said, this is a great news story. We've got to put this out because everything's always very negative. Did they put it out? So they put it out. And what we got virtually the next day from certain tabloids is police giving yobbos lollipops when you know they should be catching bad guys this is how they're spending your public money and then you get the taxpayers alliance whoever they are coming in and attacking you and this sort of thing and it all became very negative so we we decided from then on we would never put us we would run everything under the under under the <laughs> under the radar kind yeah. of all these projects but then what we'd do is we'd we'd run these projects under the radar once they're up and running if they were successful because they weren't all successful uh but 99 were but um if they were successful We'd then take a step back, make it entirely run by the local community and with the police involvement. Right. And then that would get picked up as a good news story by the local press. And then the news trawlers would pick that up right. and it would become a good, exactly the same story, then become a good news story in the, in the, in the, in the national news, if indeed it got that far. Because good news isn't good news, is it, yeah. for, for newspapers. They just want the bad stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky And one. in truth, it's impossible to be creative when you're under stress or when, you, if you, if you're fearing all the time yeah. what can go wrong, absolutely, you'll never take any chance and you'll never do anything no. creative. We were very lucky that everyone in the problems of the unit was, was kind of a bit like me. It was, well, we'll give it a run. If it doesn't work, what the hell? We've we, we got big shoulders. We can take it. Uh, most things worked. Um, there were occasional things that didn't, but like I said, most things worked. And a lot, of the, a lot of the solutions we came up with were actually quite boring. They're not, they're, not, they're not as sexy as dog shows to stop young men knifing each other or lollipops to quiet and clubbers. A lot of it was just understanding the underlying causes of the problem and then knocking the bits out. Um, Neil came up with a, a name for it. We, we, we called it the Nimitz process because Admiral Nimitz during the Second World War had a much smaller fleet of ships with which to tackle the Imperial Japanese Navy. But what he realised is the Japanese Navy could only function because they had fuel stored on this island and water stored on this island. Right. So what he did was he mined all around the islands. So even though they had a much smaller fleet, he knocked out all the various supply chains, all the things that allowed the Japanese Navy to work, he knocked those out. Then the Navy couldn't function and he, and he won. And we called it the Nimitz Principle. Um, well, Neil, I said Neil came up with this, but we used it all the time. And it's, if you were trying to take out something like a drugs market, for example, you'd look at, well, what does a drugs market need to function? Right, it needs drugs, first of all. It needs money. It needs transport. It needs stash sites. So this is your puzzle sort of yeah, idea, this, this isn't it? It's the like, puzzle idea, yeah. It's like, <laughs> there's not one side. It's not about going to take out drug dealers. It's like you need to deal with the demand, yeah, the supply. The absolutely, absolutely. And you look at all those, all those pillars that support this problem existing. You need to knock the pillars out one at a time. And sooner or later, it cannot function. And if you can do something with those pillars to stop them being able to come back, you've got a sustainable solution. It's not going to come back. And that's, that was the thing that we loved. And a lot of those bits of work we did are actually quite dull to talk about because it, it was just, you know, lots of research, lots of analysis, identifying certain people, identifying certain locations, that sort of thing, and then doing things at those locations to make things better. I mean, it's like they, they, they did a, a really interesting thing, the Wellcome Trust did an interesting thing in America recently where they took a one clinic and they brought in really quite severe rules about hand washing. They replaced the door handles with copper door handles because copper is uh, antibacterial. They, they had a regime where people were checked, their hands were regularly checked for bacteria and they had to wash and scrub regularly. And they were aiming for something like a 50% reduction of um, superbug transfer. And they got a 100% reduction Get out of here. just from enforcing existing right. systems. And a lot of the time, our problem solved was just doing that. It was actually just enforcing systems that were already there but weren't being used properly. But occasionally, like I said, you'd get the more adventurous things, like, things like using um, oh, Big Brother eyes, this idea of having a, set, a photograph of a set of eyes watching you. It's a, it's a very strong effect. It's a very strong effect. But if you've got a pair of eyes watching you and, you know, wherever you go, they follow you around the room, even if it's a photograph on a wall, it, it, it naturally inhibits your desire to do wrong things. It's like this at atavistic yeah. programming. In, in it is. Thing. It's absolutely. If we, if we think that someone's watching us, we just behave. We do. We do. They're doing a really interesting thing at the moment because um, uh, oh, that's the other thing. I, I would find people outside of the police service who were looking at this sort of thing 
but for their own purposes. Like right. the military had some really interesting stuff going on in terms of psychology for, for use in, in warfare. Um, the NHS were doing some really interesting things. The people I found the most useful of all was advertising, advertising and marketing right. people, because for years they've learned a whole range of skills to influence us to buy things we don't actually really need. Yeah. And I thought, well, if they can use, the, if those same influencing skills to be used to make people behave in a slightly different way, so they're less likely to be the victims of crime. I mean, a great example of um, Ogilvy are the leaders on this, and, and Ogilvy won with Rory Sutherland sort of uh, manning it. Good old mate of mine. Rory. His name's in your book twice. Oh as yeah, a Rory's a good mate. He sponsored and he's, you um, twice. He did, and he's, <laughs> he's, he's a good mate, and, he, and he's. I think his TED talk all about life lessons from an ad man is, I think, the second most watched TED talk of all time. Extraordinary character. But he's done that. He's taken everything he's learned from advertising and he's now applying it to make the world a better place through Ogilvy One, this, this branch of Ogilvy. Um, almost like running like a charity, really. And um, he did a great bit of work in Bristol a couple of years ago with a thing called the Put Pockets campaign, where he got an ex pickpocket and two magicians. And okay, what they did was they, I saw this. Yeah, is this they, in your book? I th- yeah, I think it's in the book. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, they had basically um, little cards that looked like smartphones uh, and small tablets. And what they did was they, they, they were going around putting them into people's pockets. And when people got home and opened their bag or their pocket, they found this thing saying, I got this into your pocket really easy. I could have got your real phone out just as easily. And it, w- it was extraordinarily good. Um, yeah, I, I love things like that. I learned a lot from uh, admin and ad, ad agencies. And it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because like you talk, um, you talk in in your book about like the nudge unit came along a few years ago, and sort yeah. of behavioural economics sort of came, like you say, through advertising, really, yeah. because it was trying to to bring the realities of human behaviour. Well, I'd, I'd kind of discovered behavioural economics before I knew what it was called, and before anyone had given it a name. Really, it was it was just really understanding how people behave and how things behave. You can then plan for it. You can you can then manipulate it. You can make it work in your advantage. You know, and like I said, these these eyes on the wall thing is it, it just came from an observe an observation that humans, as you said, it's a very atavistic thing. We are programmed to see faces and eyes and read. And if you if you see a pair of eyes that seem to be scrutinising you, you feel as if you're being scrutinised, even if it's just a photo. Well, we it's, see it in the patterns amazing. of animal prints, right? Oh, like yeah, if yeah. animal prints look like eyes, then that's like eyes or eyes on right. sort of butterflies' wings to stop that's owls right. eating them and things. Yeah, it, it's it's a very powerful effect and. I know Professor Richard Wiseman has done some really interesting things to do with babies because babies have a very powerful effect on us as well. He, he did an experiment where he took a load of wallets that were filled with dead credit cards and the usual detritus you find in a wallet, you know, sort of driving license. Nothing was valid or, or current. And he just, he just left them around in places. And, but in a certain percentage of the wallets, I think it was 10% of the wallets, he put a photograph of a baby. Get out of here. And the ones that had the photograph of the baby invariably got handed into the police. Right. And the others didn't because you'd made a human connection with the victim there. And so they're trying an experiment at the moment. Ogilvy's involved in this in, I think it's in Ealing? Somewhere in West London, they're doing an experiment at the moment with babies' faces. Not just eyes, but babies' faces with eyes watching you as an anti-burglary tool. I mean, it shouldn't It'll work, be, should it? It shouldn't, it shouldn't work. But it but should, because humans, humans are very easy to influence. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a guy called Dan Pink in America who does some great experiments. And I, I love, there was, he had a program called oh, uh, Crowd Control. Yeah. It was a series called Crowd Control. And one of my favorite bits in that series was where he painted two footmarks in front of a cash machine, a hole in the wall. And of course, people would, would go up, use the cash machine, and unconsciously, they'd stand on the footprints. And then the next day, he'd move the footprints like six inches further apart. And then he keep doing that. And there was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful video of this bloke standing there doing the cash machine with his legs spread <laughs> as far apart as he possibly could, standing on these because we're just naturally okay. we, we we're natural pattern yeah. finders. We we look for patterns, and and when we see footprints, unconsciously we'll stand on them. If you put green footprints leading up to a, a litter bin, you'll increase the number of people who use that litter bin by about forty to fifty percent. If you put footprints on the right-hand side of an escalator, people will stand there without having a sign saying "stand on the right." It's 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 an extraordinary thing, and the, and the eyes thing, and it's a science we're just really starting to understand, and we're, we're discovering new things every day. There's a there's a big conference every year um, called Nudgestock, which is all about behavioural economics, and I've I've spoken at the last two, and um, you get people there just talking from a whole range of different areas of work you know we, we get biologists we get um, behavioral scientists we get advertising people we get IT designers we get, we get people from all different ranges of life coming in and talking about how they've discovered these these delicious little nudges that, that just it's not forcing someone to do something they don't want to do 
it's putting a subtle influence in their way which they can choose to ignore if they want to but chances are they will probably follow it because their natural propensity is to follow the nudge because mm. um, A it does them no harm it doesn't disadvantage them in any way and B they're just biologically programmed to do so tell me this though, I, because all of this is like incredible creativity mm. but if resources are more strapped than ever before in the police surely there's a point where the pressure that people are under in their work means they're just scared to take chances. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, you, and the danger is you've got two things, right? You've got this audience of people who are criticising anything that goes wrong, the press or whoever they are, um, and then you've got the, the, this fear that you haven't got enough resource. Doesn't it just lead... Doesn't that like pressure just lead to the destruction of these brilliant experiments. And we're seeing it in all walks of life at the moment. We're seeing it in publishing, we're seeing it in TV, in broadcasting. Uh, publishing is, is very risk averse at the moment, you know, because, because there's only a limited pool of money. Um, you know, publishers are, and people aren't reading as much as they did, and, and e-books are easily copyable, you know, in the same way. Same sort of, publishing is going through the same sort of problem that, that music went through a few years ago. When, when music went digital, everything was copyable, everything was piratable. Um, and you know, albums disappeared, CDs have all but disappeared now. And, and the only way bands could now make money is by live shows mm. and, and by sponsorship. You know, they don't make much money from the music anymore. And books are going through this same kind of revolution. Um, TV's going through it as well. I mean, TV's become quite risk averse. You, you can take a really quite adventurous idea to TV production companies now. And, and they'll sit there and say, well, what else is it like? Is there something else like this that's already popular? Because yeah. if so, I might be willing to look at it. But if it's something completely off the wall, I won't take it. I mean, my boss at QI, uh, John Lloyd, he's taken a number of things to the BBC in the last few years. Now, John's track record, we were talking about this earlier, is incredible. You know, Blackadder, Spitting Image, Not Nine O'Clock News, Have I Got News For You? He invented all these things. He's really good at knowing what the public are going to enjoy. But they're turning stuff down that he, even someone like he's taking him because there's nothing like it out there. Mm. It's like he said, if someone went in with Monty Python now, it would never have got commissioned. And if Blackadder had been made now, it would have been cancelled after Series 1 because Series 1 didn't go as well as they'd mm. expected. It, there's this, you know, it, it, money, see, I mean, the phrase I always use is the accountants have taken over the asylum. Money seems to be the only measure of value now. Um, and, and that, that's a real issue. And it's, a, it's an issue for something like the police as well, because they've got to account for every penny. And they can't afford to take risks that might go wrong because of that. Everyone's watching them. Mm. And, th and there's all these little quangos, all these little organisations like, you know, people I mentioned, the Taxpayers Alliance. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they do. They just they, Their sole job seems to be to moan about how the police are spending their money. Yeah. And, and, and actually, they're an organisation that seems to benefit from the requirement of the BBC to give... And the other, and on the other hand, yeah. So because these are a need to do, and the other on, on the other hand, like these two people, whoever they're, wherever they're I based, know, I know. are given a voice. And but like to your dog show, you think had the dog show ended up with a pit bull attacking an Alsatian, and these that would have made the national news. National news. Whereas the fact and that people would have said, why are the police wasting money on this? Completely, absolutely. There was always that risk element to to some of the more left field stuff that we did but the, the left field stuff was invariably because we had tried everything that was you know short <laughs> short of actually sort of tattering a barcode onto every person having their dna on file and watching every single individual you know the only way we were going to solve this is by trying something no one ever tried before and we had the advantage that we did have a very far-thinking boss in tim godwin who was willing to give us a little bit of leeway I, mean, I would say we had no budget, we had no resources, although we say we were based at Scotland Yard, we were on paper, but we moved around, we right. got shoved from Pillar to Post, <laughs> well, we were in Soho Square at one point, we were down in, um, we were down in uh, South London at one point, we were in uh, Earl's Court, we were also in what is now Scotland Yard on the, on the embankment, we got shoved around whenever anyone wanted a big office, you know, they sort of shoved us out right. and we got put somewhere else, but it didn't matter that much because we were mostly out on the ground all the time, we were mostly out. At, at borough level working but yeah it's um, we had no resources to play with which is which in some ways is good I mean yeah sometimes it's an advantage yeah I mean people people say sometimes you know that necessity is the mother of invention and, and, it, and it is to some extent um, but I'll tell you the phrase that always gets me is when people say oh thinking outside the box See, I, I've never liked that phrase because yeah, you, you can be as adventurous as you like. You can think of anything outside the box. But life doesn't work like that. Life has always got boxes. And we always found that if you put the boxes around 
you know, if you had to think inside the box, which was, this is how much money we've got to spend. These are the resources in terms of people we've got. You had to be more inventive with what you had. And I, I found that thinking inside the box was more creative mm. most of the time because you were, you had to do something out of necessity. You know, you didn't, there wasn't an endless flow of cash you could pull out. It's all very well saying thinking outside the box. If you've got, you know, a multimillionaire around the corner who's going to say, yeah, I'll fund all of that. Never happened. Yeah. Never happened. We probably had nothing. Final question for you. Um, I was chatting to a fireman. This is more about the day-to-day -day culture in the police. Yeah, actually. yeah. I chatting to a fireman. He said the difference between the fireman and the police, and it's prob probably through, it's, it's something that's been reached through need rather than anything else. But he said the difference between the fireman and the police is that you're on blue watch or red watch, and often you can serve your whole 30 years with the same yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 people. And so the camaraderie, the humour, the in-jokes build. And you spend and more time with them than you do with your own family. That's right. He yeah, said yeah. you laugh so much every day in like the moments of the deepest trauma. He said the difference is with the police, you're never with the same people every day. That's true. And so you don't build. Now, that's probably to avoid the dangers of camaraderie. But, um, yeah, the, but he said you don't build the same camaraderie in the police as you, you really do in fire service. You really don't. I mean, you, you, you do work. You know, you, you, you get posted to a station, you get posted to a particular shift, which is the equivalent of a watch, you know. And, and, and you'll work with those same people for the period of time that you're working at that station. And, and you choose to remain, you know, a street cop. And you will work with those same people. But some of those people will want to go into CID and they'll disappear and a new person will come in. And someone else will want to become a dog hander and they'll go off and do that. And someone else will want to go off and be mounted branch or join special branch or do that. You know, the, the, the makeup of the shift will constantly change. So even though you stay on the same watch, the same shift, the personnel is in constant change. Um, and then, of course, as with many forces, the Met had a policy that when you'd been somewhere for a certain length of time, it was time to move on. Uh, which is which I always found a very strange policy because I would just get to know an area intimately you know and all the bad guys and all the relationships between the bad guys and all the streets and everything and then they'd move me somewhere else and I'd have to start from scratch but there, were, there was there was such a fear of corruption in the fact that if people do have that if you do have that deep sense of camaraderie like fire officers get I mean I often wonder if a fire officer then did something wrong how likely would one of the other fire officers on that on that team be willing to dob them in, you know, to, to work against them? Whereas it's a bit easier with cops because you don't form those strong bonds. And I've seen many, many occasions where a cop's done something wrong and the other cops have been the first people to come forward about it. People don't realise that the one thing most cops hate is a bent cop because um, it reflects on all of us. So, um, yeah, that, that there are advantages to it. There's disadvantages too, because like I said, if something... Saying that, fire officers don't necessarily have the, the opportunities cops do to do bad things. Yeah, you know, I, that, I that, wonder that's though, the one thing. The, the, so the, the fire officer said to me is that he said the benefit of that is that the, the power of humour yeah. when it comes to dealing with trauma is immensely powerful. So oh, like humour is essential. So people who've gone through these things, and he said the level of humour that you get from being in this close-knit family, this team, mm. is immensely powerful. Police must have a lot of trauma as well. They do. But probably don't have the same sort of support network? No, no. I mean, you've, you've got the support of colleagues to a degree. Um, and nowadays, they're, they're much more set up for it because they do now have sort of counsellors training. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. One job that every cop used to hate was the death message. We had to go okay. and knock on a door and tell someone that one of their loved ones had been killed. Generally, completely unexpectedly. Um, it's a horrible job and there's no easy way to do it. You, you can't stand there and because oh, uh, immediately you're there, people think, oh my God, what's happened? Mm. You, you've got to kind of, not in a brutal way. Did they but, train you for that? No, when I, when I used to do it, they didn't give you any training for that. Now, as it happens, I was okay doing it. I, I, whether it's a kind of detachment, I've, I've naturally got, I used to be able to stand on the doorstep and say, hello, my name is Peter Colgan, I'm from such so -so. I'm afraid I've got some bad news regarding your son, such -so. and they'll go, oh my God, what's happened? I say, there's no easy way to break this to you. I'm sorry, but he's, he was involved in a motorcycle accident and he's died. And, and then you bring them down from there. You go in, you make a cup of tea with them, you ask if, any, if there's a relative and come and see them. You offer to give them a lift to somewhere if they've got to go and meet people. There's no easy way to do it, but I've got a degree of detachment. I could do that without getting emotionally involved. A lot of my colleagues couldn't do that. They, they would find it very emotionally um, taxing or upsetting. These days, they're much more set up for it. They now, ha they now have training for this, and there are specific officers whose job is to do this. Imagine and they're, they're that's trained your job. To, yeah, I know, I know. I don't know how people do it. Well, I, I could probably do it, because I'm that sort of person, but, you know, not everyone can do it. It's, um, it's a horrible job. So 
but certainly for many many years it would it really was a case of you know there was that very macho thing mm. uh, <laughs> even to some degree amongst the women man up you know and and uh, you know what sort of weed are you you can't do that there was, there was very much that kind of macho um atmosphere that, that's changed a lot and it's changed for the better it really has changed for the better and, and people are a bit more prepared for that sort of thing now what's the humor like in the police it's great i, I have to say is it it okay. used to be it used to be much better because it you could, often see two bobbies walking alongside yeah it's miserable i know I, they it, look really awkward well, the with thing each is, other it used to be a lot more i mean a lot of the humor that used to exist and, and it was a sort of um i suppose it was a pressure release as well a lot of the humor amongst cops was very denigrating there was lots of giving each other nicknames and there was a lot of um doing wind-ups on each other, playing practical jokes on each other and things like that. And a lot of that got cut out because it was deemed to be bullying. I mean, cops used to be brilliant. Cops used to be brilliant at coming up with nicknames for each other. Uh, I mean, I I mentioned some of them in the book because they were just so inventive. There was... I remember there was one guy, everyone called Treasure, and I wondered why. They said he's got a sunken chest, which I thought was brilliant. Um, <laughs> or you get, you know, sort of the SO, SO man who, you know, is every Saturday, Sunday off, or, or you know, the Olympic torch, because he never goes okay. out. And, and there was all these sort of, there was sort of the obvious and the classic ones, but there were also some brilliant ones. But there's, there's other things like when a new probationer came onto your team, you know, as a brand new probationary officer, sort of 18 years old, fresh, keen, ready to go. There was invariably a practical joke that was pulled on them, as, as a, almost like a rite of passage. But it was never, it was never, you know, it wasn't sort of, you know, having a bend over and being bitten with a cracker bat, you know, and sort of please, may I have another and all that. So it was never, it was never nasty. It was always, it was always done with a, a degree of humour. We'd call them to the premises and they'd get water bombed, or in my case, you know, getting a call to the the local mortuary to let the ambulance crew in with a body, and then and then actually, you know someone hiding in one of the fridges so when i open the door getting it ready for the body to come in this, this someone to say shut the door it's cold in here and things like this and it'd make you jump out of your skin but it was it, it was always done with with <laughs> with you know a complete sense of humor right. and and if you got through it and out the other side and you said oh you got me there you, you, you were in the gang it showed that you know you you'd you take it you'd taken the hit you were part of the gang you were willing to have a laugh with them and you knew then that they would have your back, right. no matter what. It was a kind of right. It's, I said that's all considered to be bullying now. Nicknames are considered to be bullying. Um, Not allowed to use nicknames. No, I, I, I'm sure they still do to some degree, but it's probably really mild names like calling someone who's called Hodge, Hodgie, or something like that. Because you're imposing the name on someone. It's not their choice to have that name, and they, they don't like that. But and, and I think the other thing is they're just so overworked. They're just so overworked. Now there's no time just to sort of kick back because. At least I knew that there were some days when I was posted foot patrol that I could put on my funny hat and I could head off up the street and go for a walk. And chances are I could spend the entire eight hours wandering around and I wouldn't have much to deal yeah. with apart from talking to the community. You know, that, that's all gone. That's, that's all gone. They are running from pillar to post all the time, trying to keep on top of things. They're under constant pressure from the press, the tabloids, all these different organisations that are scrutinising them. So they've got to live with that now as well. Um, and of course, the other thing is that everything is under scrutiny now. Everyone's got cameras in their phones. Everyone's got cameras on the rooftops. It's although saying that, it's it's not that cops are worried about being caught out. They're not. I, I love the fact that when vest cams came in, I was, I was the, number of, the number of complaints against police dropped substantially. I was a juror about a month and a half ago, and vest cams transform the perception yeah. of a of a person at a crime scene because you know. Whereas previously you might have spoken in sort of a moody tone to a police officer, now it looks terrible when that's presented to a court. Yeah, of course of it does. People didn't realise this. We were, we were always uh, cops were always having to defend themselves, and of course it's it's he said she said all the time. And when they said oh that we should have these cameras so that we can see what police really get up to, cops went brilliant. Now you can see what we have to deal with. Absolutely. And I said the number of complaints against police has dropped substantially since mm. they came in because people can now actually see what really happened. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot more scrutiny, and I, I think the opportunity for humour is a lot. It's, yeah. got, it's gone a lot, and the opportunity for thinking time has gone as well. I, it's I, it's I, a shame, isn't it? When those cuts are made, it seems like people are sort of saying, "Oh, well, there's no impact on the bottom line." And what you miss is all the stuff that's not on the bottom line. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that, that whenever there's, you know, it's like London was told to lose five thousand cops. They'll never take five thousand cops off the street because that's noticeable. And because they don't want the public to think, oh my God, we're horribly under-resourced now. What will happen is the background boys and girls, mm. all the people who are doing all the prevention work that's keeping the lid on all the crimes from happening, 
they're the ones who get turfed out of their yeah. offices, which means then more crimes happen, which means that those who are on the street now have much more to deal yeah. with and are off the street more yeah. because they've got arresting things in. So the number of cops on the street does go down. It's always the people in those backroom jobs who go first. And they're the people who, don't worry, on the frontline coppering is, is the hardest job there is. And I've got nothing but respect for people who do frontline work. Uh, they're the backbone of the job. But to help them to be able to do their job effectively and to give them the time and the resources to do their job, you've got to have the background people as well, like the traffic division who can handle all the accidents, like the people who are doing all the preventative work, like the people who are doing all the intelligence uh, gathering and, and, and sort of building crime maps and, and working out predictions and patterns. You need all of that to keep, mm. to keep a lid on the number of crimes happening. And that's the first thing to go. All, yeah. the, back, all the background stuff goes. Yeah. It's awful. Thanks for listening again. So that was our second episode about the police. Back to normal service on the next episode. If you want to hear more, sign up on our newsletter, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. And I will say to you that my own book, The Joy of Work, is out a month from now. It's out in January 2019. If you are interested in coming to some of the events that I'm doing for that, you can either uh, follow me on Twitter at Bruce Daisley or search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat and I will put it out as well to the, the newsletter. So there's about three or four events that I'm speaking at, ev- evening events in the main and if you're interested in getting involved and coming along to those, uh, you'll find the details there. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 